0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Wenton, California. Turn with me again, if you will, to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. Chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4 this morning, and we're going to examine the means whereby the church can experience unity in the fellowship. The means whereby the church can experience unity in the fellowship. Before Christmas break, we were working our way through the book of Philippians in an effort to discover and to realize what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. I know that all of us have read uh, those verses. Uh, Well, that one verse, from time to time, and uh, I also know that for many of us, we scratch our heads and we say, Well, how can we do that? Uh, how can we rejoice in the Lord always when there is so much trouble and disappointment and discouragement and frustration uh, going on in our world today? How can we rejoice? In the Lord always. Well, that's what the book of Philippians is all about. It is the Apostle Paul taking this wonderful gift of joy that we have received from Jesus Christ and opening that gift and unpacking that gift and showing us not only what joy is, but how joy affects us and how joy uh, works in us uh, to be able to embrace. Um, This joy, even in troubled times, uh, even in times when the clouds are the darkest, when the night is the darkest, and when there doesn't seem to be any hope beyond uh, the experience we're going through. And so I I want to uh, continue on in this study. I know that uh, Uh, Stanley's Sunday School class has long since left the book of Philippians behind, and they're on to the book of Ezekiel and others, but uh, here we are still in the book of Philippians. And so your prophecy came true that Sunday School would be finished with the book of Philippians and I would still be in the first chapter or so. I want to remind us, Of the definition of Christian joy. Christian joy is a choice. It is choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction, knowing that God will use those experiences, those circumstances, those situations that we're facing to accomplish His work in us, which is to grow us in faith, to grow us in dependence upon Him, that He will use those experiences to accomplish His work in us and through us into our, not only our lives but into the lives of others. So Christian joy is to choose to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment, not getting riled up, not getting uh, frustrated, not getting angry, not uh, getting depressed, falling into despair, not picking up your marbles and going home, but it is to choose to respond positively to the circumstances and the situations that we go through, knowing that God is going to work those things to our benefit and to His glory. I also want to remind us that unity in the church, we're not talking about uniformity where everybody looks the same, everybody talks the same, everybody walks the same. That's uniformity. That's not uh, unity. Unity in the church is the expression of oneness In Jesus Christ. Oneness in Jesus Christ. Even though we may differ in our age, our sex, our race, our background, our experiences, it is what Paul called in verse 2 being of one mind. Being of one mind. That is, knowing the mind of Christ knowing the mind of Christ for our lives and for the life of the church, and then working together in ministry through the spiritual gifts that he gives us. That's what Christian unity is really all about. In Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul laid the groundwork for building a theology of joy, and he did that by expressing the dynamics of joy in his own personal life. The various experiences that he went through in his ministry that built up this joy in his life, that accentuated this joy in his life, that elevated this joy in his life. And I may remind us that many of the experiences of the Apostle Paul in ministry were negative, Many times he was run out of town. Several times he was whipped, thrown in prison. One time he was taken outside the city and stoned until they thought he was dead. And yet, he tells us that in these experiences, he uh, also experienced a dynamic of God's joy that encouraged him, that motivated him to continue on, to continue to do the work of Jesus Christ, despite the contenders, despite the oppressors. I would have us note also that in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the necessity for the Christian fellowship, the church, to experience joy, by being united together in Christ Jesus. I don't know of anything that's more disheartening, and I know that you may agree with me. I don't know of anything more disheartening as a Christian than to be in a fellowship of Christian people who are at odds with each other. Um, It is distasteful, it's discouraging, uh, it is disappointing, it is frustrating, simply because this is not what Jesus Christ wants for the members of His body. Uh, also, it is, not, uh, it is not just what Jesus doesn't want for the church, it is also that the church cannot function that Jesus Christ would want us to function if we're all um, in discord, if we're all out of sorts with each other, if we're all uh, standing opposed to each other. So in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul stresses the need for Christians to experience joy in the unity of the church. And I just want to say parenthetically that there cannot be joy in the Christian church unless there is joy in the individual Christian we cannot bring to the church joy, Christian joy, if we're not experiencing it in ourselves. Amen. So we should understand that joy in the Christian church cannot be realized until there is joy in the Christian heart. And when there is joy in the christian church when it is experienced in the fellowship of believers it enhances the joy that's already in the heart of the christian Amen. so it is a it is a give and take Situation. We bring joy into the fellowship through our experiences in Christ Jesus, and the joy that we have in Christ Jesus is enhanced when those in the fellowship express that joy with us. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we examined the foundation of Christian unity, and we zeroed in specifically on chapter 2, verse 2, Uh, to explore the essence of Christian unity, what it really is all about. This morning I want us to explore together the means whereby we experience that Christian joy personally and we bring that joy into the fellowship of the church corporately. There are six principles that the Apostle Paul gives us in chapter 2, verses Uh, 3 and 4. Stand with me in the honor of God's Word as we read these two verses. The Apostle Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the Word of God, and we ask His blessing upon the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Now, some individuals look at these two verses and say, well, there's really only four principles. Some say there's five. Uh, I, I believe that there are six principles um, in these two verses, and we'll go through them fairly quickly. Well, we won't go through all six, we'll only go through two, and in addressing the, well, three, in addressing the three, we'll also be addressing the other three. Now, I find in these two verses that there are three positive principles that lead to uh, joy in a person's life and in the fellowship of the church, and there are three negative principles, principles that that need to be avoided. So, three are negative, three are positive. The first is a negative one, notice here in the text, that we're to avoid selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, literally, the word means uh, infighting or contention. And it comes from selfish ambition. When an individual is selfish at heart, that always leads to contention. It always leads to infighting. Nobody likes to be around a person who is selfish. Nobody uh, likes to uh, share with individuals who are selfish. And so Paul says, avoid that. Second, there's also a negative is also a negative here in the text. Avoid conceit. Conceit is self-seeking. It means to be self-seeking. It means personal ambition. Avoid conceit. Third is a positive. Have lowliness of mind. In other words, be humble. Lowliness of mind. The fourth is a positive. Esteem others better than yourself. In other words, honor others over honoring yourself the fifth is a negative avoid looking out for one's own self-interest in other words uh, avoid promoting your personal agenda your personal concerns and then the last is positive look out for the interests of others promote their concerns over your own So those are the six principles that I see here. Three of them positive, three of them negative. Embracing three of them, avoiding the other three of them. And I would also state that when we embrace the three positive principles, that will cancel out the three negative principles. A humble mind and honoring others over self corrects selfish ambition and empty conceit. And the concern for the interests of others corrects concern for one's own self-interest. So, this morning I'm going to major on the positives. Because if we get the positives down, uh, the Spirit of God will enable us then to take care of the negatives. And I find this balance true throughout all of Scripture. Where the Lord talks about negative things and then talks about positive things that correct the negative things. Whenever Scripture says, don't do something, I consider what it is that I should do. For instance, the Ten Commandments. All of the commandments but two are expressed in the negative. You will not lie, you will not steal, you will not commit adultery, you will not do this, you will not do that. When I read the Ten Commandments, and I do all the time, but a long, long time ago, I began thinking, well, if this is what I should not do, then what is the positive counterpart? What is it that God wants me to do so that I won't do what he commands me not to do? If I focus on the negative, and I'm prone to focus on the negative, if I focus on the negative, then I will miss out on the positive. And if I stay focused on the negative, knowing human nature, as I know human nature, I'll be tempted to test the negative to find out why I shouldn't do it. And I think we're all guilty of that from time to time. Maybe you were a child once and you were in the kitchen with mom or with dad and the burner plate was on or the oven was on and mom or dad said, don't touch it, it's hot. But you had to touch it to find out how hot it really was. And I know that all of us have come across a sign posted Somewhere that says, do not touch wet paint. And our first impulse was to see just how wet wet paint really is. We can laugh at those things because they are humorous. And in many instances, they're inconsequential. I mean, there's nothing really bad that happens uh, when you touch the wet paint. Uh, You could burn yourself pretty good if you touch the hot plate when you're not supposed to. But sometimes not paying heed to the negatives can be devastating. Down Highway 71, from where I lived as a boy, where David lived as a boy there in Arkansas there's a place is a, a tributary from the fourche- le fay river called Mill Creek Mill Creek Mill Creek is a a beautiful spot where we would go in the summertime to swim it's smaller than a river but it's larger than than a creek in places it can be 10 feet deep in places it can be a foot deep or less where highway 71 crosses over mill creek down near midway i'm sure you all know these places there is a cement bridge The highway crosses over Mill Creek, a cement bridge about 25 or 30 feet high above the surface of the water. Posted on that bridge, there is a sign clearly stating, do not dive off the bridge. More than once, a teenager or young adult has Dove off that bridge and seriously injured themselves by hitting the rocks just below the surface of the water. When Scripture tells us to avoid something, there is a very good reason why God posts that in the text. It is for our benefit, it is for our good that we do pay attention to these signs that God gives us in life. So now in the fellowship of the Christian church, in the fellowship of the Christian church there has to be unity in the bond of love. There has to be a working together with one mind, in the kingdom of God, in order to accomplish our Lord's purpose. In order for that to occur, there must be certain things that we do embrace and follow. The first one is a lowliness That's what he says in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. A lowliness of mind. What does that mean? Lowliness of mind is a rejecting of the idea and the attitude that you are superior to others. Lowliness of mind is rejecting the attitude, the idea, that you are better than everyone else. It doesn't mean that you think of yourself as unintelligent or worthless or useless. It does mean that you think of others as being intelligent and useful and worthy, and maybe even more so than yourself. Lowliness of mind doesn't take anything away from you. It simply opens your eyes to the qualities and the characteristics in other people. It's the opposite of selfish ambition, it's the opposite of conceit which are the children of arrogance and pride. How does an individual develop such an attitude? I mean it's difficult nowadays isn't it to not think of yourself being better and that's you know that's the that's the buzz that's going around today uh, a lot in a lot of the culture A lot of the um, the counterculture. Thank you. That we're finding in our world today, white supremacy, white superiority. Uh, It it's just it really is unnerving, and to a degree, there are a lot of people who embrace that attitude, wrongly embrace that attitude. For to look at yourself or to look at your race as being superior to others is to close your eyes to the positive qualities and characteristics and contributions that other races make to our culture. It is only to focus in on yourself rather than to encourage Those that are around you. How does a person develop a humbleness of mind when there is so much going on around us that would have us feel and think of ourselves as being superior? Well, when I used to do conferences years and years ago, there was an exercise that I would involve our, our groups in. And I want to share that with you this morning. I, I, I don't want you to do what we did in those conferences, but I do want you to consider something. Consider the person sitting next to you. You don't need to look at the person. Maybe you don't know who's sitting next to you, and you need to look at the person sitting next to you. But I want you to consider the person sitting next to you. That person knows what he or she is thinking about you. But do you know what's going on in the mind of that person, yourself? That person knows what they're thinking about you, but do you know what they're thinking about you? Let's go a little deeper. Do you know what's in the heart of the person sitting next to you? Do you know what is in the heart of the person sitting next to you? Do you know that person's personal joys or sorrows? Are you aware of that person's desires and dreams? Let's go a little deeper still. Do you know that person's personal walk With Jesus? Do you know if that person is struggling with faith, with doubt, with sin? Or if that person's walk with Jesus is joyful, progressive, and productive? In all honesty, We really don't know these things about those individuals sitting around us unless they tell us, unless they share those things with us. We don't know what that person is thinking. We don't know what that person is feeling. We don't know what that individual is experiencing in their mind, their heart, or their spirit. But we do know these things about ourselves. We do know these things about ourselves. We know more about our own mind, heart, and spirit than we do about anyone else's. Now one final question. Who is the worst sinner you've ever met? Who is the worst sinner you've ever met? I'm talking about personal... First-hand knowledge. Who is the worst sinner you've ever met? If you're truly honest, you will say it's yourself. You will say it's yourself. Because you don't really know all the sins of others, but you do know your own sins. What's the point? Simply this. Every person knows his own heart and his own life better than another's. And there is enough personal, first-hand knowledge about yourself that should lead you to say with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans Chapter 7 and verse 24. And again, when the Apostle Paul cries out to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the chief of sinners. We can assume a lot about others by the way they look, the way they speak, the way they dress, the way they walk. But assuming is not knowing. Assuming is not knowing. No one knows the heart of another individual except that individual and God. So it behooves us. It behooves us to not take a position of superiority over another person when we know so much about ourselves. Second, in the fellowship of of the Christian church, there must be unity through concern for others' interests. Notice what he says in verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now the Apostle Paul is not saying, and, and hear this clearly, he's not saying that we shouldn't have our own interests. We should. But not to the exclusion of the interests of others. We should have our own interests. There are things that we should be interested in and concerned about. But if that's all that we're interested in and concerned about, then there will not be joy in the fellowship of the church. And quite frankly, my friends, there won't be joy in your own heart if that's all you're concerned about is what you want to do, your agenda, your purpose, your concerns, your issues. There won't be any real joy in your heart. In in the course of my years as a pastor, I've come to realize that for many people in Christianity and in churches, church life is about competition and about promoting one's Personal agenda where people are consumed with their own ideas, opinions, plans, and purposes, and their ears are stopped to the ideas and plans and purposes of others in the fellowship. And it leads me to ask in those situations where those things surface in the church it leads me to ask the question who is the head of the church anyway to whom are we accountable to in the church and there are some in the fellowship of the church maybe not in this fellowship but in other churches they will say well the pastor is he's the head of the church no 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 my friend the pastor is not the head of the church jesus christ is the head of the church. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Pastors are simply under shepherds. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. Amen. It is given to us. By the calling of the Holy Spirit to lead the fellowship of the church as Jesus Christ directs that church. The direction of that church, the ministries of that church, the focus of that church. We are to facilitate that under His leadership. Again, the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Now indeed, there are many members and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And I hear it from time to time. I, I will hear an individual say, well, you know, I'm not really all that important to the church. And I've visited individuals who don't attend here anymore, even though their membership is still on the church rolls. And I will ask them, you know, what has, what has happened? Oh, you know, I, I have nothing to contribute to the church. I'm not really all that important to what goes on in the church. And so I just don't attend. Most of us, if not all of us, give very little thought to our little toe until we hit it on the leg of a chair. And then we think about that little toe a lot. You may not necessarily think that a big toe is all that important. My father, in World War II, when parachuting from a B-17 that had been hit by anti-aircraft fire in Czechoslovakia, he was shot by a sniper as he was parachuting down. The bullet went through his boot, took off his big toe, Passed in front of his face. My father, all the days of his life, had difficulty balancing himself because he was missing a big toe. You wouldn't think that a big toe would have that kind of an impact on a person's stability, but it does. And the point the Apostle Paul is making here is there may be those in the fellowship who are behind the scenes folks. They're not out in the limelight. They're not the ones that are speaking. They're not the ones that are uh, heading up the committee or leading the charge in a certain uh, event. They're behind the scenes people. They don't get... Much press if they get any at all. But they are as vitally important to the life and to the work of the church as those who are leading the charge, as those who are in the limelight, as those who are the ones who are speaking and training and leading. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know that each and every one of us have an important part to play. We are members of the body of Christ. And we have an important part to play in the health and the well-being and the functioning of that body in Christ. But He is the head of that body. I'm not. And no one else in this room is. It is Christ who is the head of His church. In Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, we're given the account of Salome and her two sons who approached Jesus asking if he would permit James and John to sit in places of honor in our Lord's kingdom. Here's a mom looking out for her boys. And her boys are kind of in agreement with her because they approach Jesus with her as she's asking the question, can one of my boys sit at the right hand and the other sit at the left hand in your kingdom? Selfish ambition. Conceit. Promoting self-interest. How do we know this? Because when they asked, the other disciples became very angry and divisive. Jesus responded to Salome and to James and John, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the attitude that Christians are to have in the fellowship if there is to be unity in that fellowship. Selfish ambition, conceit, self-interests, are not to be the attitudes of God's people. They destroy unity in the fellowship. They do not express love for one another, but they promote anger and bitterness and division in the church. So my prayer is that as a church, we will always seek to be humble in mind and spirit, to have the mind of Christ, every one of us, have the mind of Christ for what he desires in my life personally and what he desires in the church corporately. To esteem others and to honor others above ourselves and to seek the interests and the concerns of other people as we seek the interest and concerns that we may have as well. Those are the means whereby unity begins to gel in the fellowship of God's people. Amen? Amen. Sean, come and lead us in a song, and then we will dismiss. Father, we thank you for the day, and we thank you for the privilege to be here, to enjoy the presence of your Holy Spirit, the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to open your word in Bible study and in worship. We pray now as we leave the house, we'll be mindful of your presence with us, to the appointed uh, events of the afternoon and throughout the evening. And again, Lord, we pray your blessing upon those who could not be with us because uh, of ill health, and those who have been exposed, Pastor David, Teresa, and Taylor, and to be with John as well, uh, be with Anna and Eric and Logan, and be with Cole, Lord, as they're struggling with COVID as well, and other individuals in our communities, in our families that are uh, having to deal with this virus. Keep us wise. uh, Keep us safe that we may take every precaution, Lord, not to be infected or, Lord God, to take those steps necessary to overcome the infection should we have it. Bless your children that we might be a blessing to you in lifting up the name of Jesus Christ because it's in his name we've gathered and it's in his name we pray and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord.